there's a big difference between true white and white. Uh, you know, a sheep looks white until you see it standing in a, a field of pure snow, uh, and then you see how yellow and grimy it is. Teeth look white. Uh, well, that's what I thought uh, during this period when I didn't go to the dentist for several years. Um, you know, uh, but after making an appointment and receiving four fillings and a professional clean, I couldn't believe how white my teeth then became. It, you know how unclean something is when you can hold it up against something purely white? You see how much more you do need to brush your teeth and how much you need to you know, shampoo your sheep. Uh, and in today's passage, John is going to bring us face to face with brighter brights, darker darks, and the most powerful cleanser in the world. Uh, we're going to consider this passage today by looking at three images that he uses. Light, darkness, and blood. Uh, first up, let's start with, it uh, wasn't read out, but uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As John summarizes Jesus' message, uh, this is the aspect he wants to focus on. God is light. Uh, this refers to God's moral perfection. He is the definition of good and right and true. Uh, he is completely fair, completely loving. In him is no darkness. You know when you turn a torch on at night and there's this little uh, ring of light, but even within that ring of light, you can still see these patches of, of shadow and darkness? Well, it's not like that at all. More like the sun, which is incredibly brighter and lights up everything. Yet even the sun has black spots. Uh, but in God, there is no flaws. There is no evil. And as we read the Bible, we see how God is far more blinding than even the sun as we look at his glory and moral perfection. Uh, one time, God told Moses no one was able to see his face and live. Uh, God had to put Moses in this sort of cleft in a rock and cover up his eyes so that Moses could only just see the back of his glory. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, one time he glimpsed God in his glory and all he could say is, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips. When the prophet Ezekiel was in a similar position, he fell flat on his face in awe. God dwells in unapproachable light, says the Apostle Paul. You just can't come near God. God is light, pure and perfectly good. And because of that, he gets to define morality. Uh, he is perfectly good, so he defines what is good. And he also gets to define what is evil. Evil is whatever God is not. Lots of people in our society uh, like to have a go at defining morality themselves. Um, some will say, you know, it's just whatever we think is right. Others may try and look at evolution or something and try to get a description of morality. But all these attempts will fundamentally be flawed because God is light, pure, and perfectly good. Uh, no plebiscite 
No political motion can ever change that. Uh, nevertheless, um, some people do ch try charge God with being in darkness. Uh, I love Richard Dawkins' uh, quote in The God Delusion, uh, where he says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, misogynistic, homophobic, etc., etc. It's a big claim that God is in darkness, but that just doesn't fit with what the Bible says. Uh, in the introduction to the Bible PTC course that some of us have been doing this semester, uh, we've been looking at an overview of the big storyline of the Bible. And what we've found is that God is incredibly patient and merciful and fair. Uh, the claim that God has darkness in him, it just doesn't stack up with what's actually written in the Bible. The big storyline of the Bible shows that God is light, pure, and perfectly good. But on the other side of God's perfect light is sin and darkness. Uh, this is where John spends most of his time uh, in today's passage. The church that John was writing to um, seems to have been going through a rough time. It sounds like there was a bit of a split in the church where some people, uh, particularly some teachers, left because of significant theological differences. Uh, John writes this letter uh, and his key aim is reassurance. John writes this letter to reassure his readers that they are following the true gospel. And following the truth means thinking rightly about sin and darkness. Uh, three times in this passage, uh, John starts a sentence by saying, if we say we have. Uh, you can see that in verses 6, 8, and 10. Uh, these three sayings, that they may have been the sort of things that the false teachers who left uh, were saying. Uh, we can't be quite sure about that, but whatever the case, John writes to correct these viewpoints to make sure that every one of us thinks rightly about sin. Uh, let's look at the first one in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, to have fellowship with God means to have a relationship with him where we have the same interests and same purposes as him. And if God is light, well, uh, to have fellowship with him means that we should walk in the light as well. Uh, walking is the, the Bible way of saying the way we do life. And if the way we do life is consistently, intentionally, not what God wants, we are walking in darkness. And John has news for us. We lie and do not practice the truth. Uh, we are hypocrites, living a lie. And when John says the truth, uh, he's talking more, about, uh, more than just about knowing facts about Jesus. The truth is something we need to do. Uh, you might have been here at church for a, a long time uh, and know lots of facts about the truth. Uh, perhaps you could even pass a quiz. But are you practicing the truth by intentionally striving to know what it means to live God's way and doing it? 
Uh, or, or is it more a blasé affair? You know, easy come, easy go. If we are not intentionally trying to walk in the light, we are walking in darkness and living a lie. Uh, verse 7 uh, shows the other side of this. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Uh, sin comes up a lot uh, in the next couple of verses. Uh, sin is what we do when we don't walk in the light, but walk in darkness. It means ignoring and rejecting God in order to live life our own way instead. Uh, this could be done intentionally, or it could be done from sheer thoughtlessness, where we just never stop and consider God and factor him into our lives. And sin has consequences. Uh, first up is judgment. Uh, sin offends God. Uh, we have broken our relationship, our fellowship with him. We have disobeyed him. He is rightfully angry, angry and we deserve punishment. And on top of that, sin makes us unclean. Uh, this is not talking about you know, bacteria or dirt. Uh, this refers back to what we see in the, the Old Testament. You see, if people disobeyed God's laws and sinned against him, they became morally unclean. And if you were morally unclean, you couldn't enter the temple and you couldn't approach God in his pure and perfect light. Well, that's what the Bible defines sin, but sin as a concept is uh, fast disappearing uh, from our society. Uh, the, the language of sin is a repulsive and dangerous word from a bygone era when we were still trapped under the shackles of religion. Uh, now we have moved on. Uh, the whole idea of sin is a bit quaint. Uh, think about how much advertising uses pictures of uh, a devil with his very uh, attractive uh, female assistants. Uh, you know, it's cool and a, a bit risque to dabble in a bit of sin and debauchery. And as our culture has shifted away from having a concept of sin, we've tended to shift the blame for our actions as well. Uh, Philip Zimbardo is a, a famous American psychologist. Uh, his research has had a, a wide influence on that discipline today. Uh, let me read out a section from an interview with him that was published in the Huffington Post uh, last year. He says, Social psychologists like myself have been trying to correct the belief that most people hold that evil is only located in the disposition of the individual, you know, in their genes, their brains, their essence, and, and that there are good apples and there are bad apples. Uh, but I, uh, the interviewer, rejoined, there are bad apples, no? Yes, of course, Zimbardo conceded the point. But the vast majority of evil in the world is not committed by those few bad apples. Instead, it is ordinary people doing extraordinary things under certain circumstances. Zimbardo prefers to err on the side of granting people the benefit of the doubt. He says, before we blame individuals... The charitable thing to do is to first find out what situations they were in that might have provoked this evil behaviour. Why not assume that these are good apples in a bad barrel rather than bad apples in a good barrel? 
Uh, now, Mr. Zimbardo is really onto something true here. Um, he's got a lot of evidence to back him up. Uh, the social environment that we are in can drastically affect how immorally we behave. But did you notice the underlying assumption in all that he said? You know, traditional psychologists, they believe evil came from somewhere in a person, you know, in the genes, in the brain or essence. Uh, he still believes this, but only in some cases. Most people are assumed to be good apples. Uh, most of us are basically good, but just put us in a certain situation and, and we become rotten. Uh, his viewpoint's a bit more nuanced than that, but I think that our society broadly agrees with this viewpoint. You know, there are genuinely evil people. Hitler, Donald Trump, etc. But not us. We are basically good. And, and when we do bad stuff, well, it's not completely our fault anyway. It's, it's our situation. It's our circumstances. It's the other guy's fault. And this uh, is the air that we breathe. And even us who follow Jesus, uh, we can be swayed by this mindset as well. Uh, it's very easy to slip into thinking that we as Christians are pretty good apples. Uh, you know, I've been pretty good today. I've been free from sin. You know, a few slip-ups here and there, but yeah, I'm basically good. And if we do something that's not so good, will we too easily try to justify ourselves and pass the blame? Yeah? I'm not an angry person. It's just when that person winds me up that I can't help but be angry. You know, I don't gossip. It's those people who gossip around me and I just sometimes get sucked in. Uh, it's not my fault that I clicked on that link and looked at that web page. Someone else posted it. They made me see it. And this is why we really need to hear 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Before I visited my dentist after a, a long hiatus, I looked at my teeth and I thought they were fine. I, I knew looks could be deceiving and you really should see a dentist regularly, but I thought, no, surely I will never have a problem. And so I didn't notice the yellowing, uh, the build-up of plaque, the cavities forming deep out of sight as my teeth were rotting away. If we look at ourselves and think we are without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. Uh, we could only ever do that uh, if we stop looking at God, who is light, pure and perfectly good, and putting ourselves in contrast. Uh, placed alongside his purity our whiteness is quickly shown to be stained. And, and John makes another point in verse 10. He says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, to deny that we are sinful or, or to downplay it is to effectively say, you know, sin is an issue. It, it's no big deal. It, it doesn't require a drastic solution. But why then did God send his only son to die? 
to deny sin or minimize the seriousness of sin is to say that God wasted his time sending Jesus. Even worse, God has lied about the whole affair. We must not deny our sin. Verse 9 shows us what we should do instead. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, Confessing means coming to God and admitting what we have done wrong. No denying, no ignoring, no passing the blame onto someone else. It means facing up fully to what we have done and claiming responsibility for it. Confessing our sins is part of what it means to walk in the light. Uh, Every week here at church, part of the service uh, is the confession. This is the time where all of us together come to God, confess our sinfulness and our sins. Uh, But if, uh, truth be told, um, with the repetitiveness uh, of it all, uh, I personally find it very easy to switch off when the time for confession comes. Uh, My brain just goes into hibernate mode, and although it looks like my eyes are open, there's really just a screensaver going on in the background. (laughs) And and even when I do think, right, I'm going to think about if I've sinned recently, if if nothing comes to mind, then I, I just don't bother thinking about it too hard. You know, we'll, we'll move on to another song in a moment anyway. Can you relate with that? Friends, this is dangerous. Let's keep confession from becoming a meaningless ritual. Uh, let's put our effort into making sure the time of confession is a time that each one of us does business with God. Um, name specific sins. Uh, if we can't think of saying specific, you know, sometimes we can't. That's fine. But let's still come intentionally to God and say something like, I can't think precisely what I am to confess, but I know how quick I am to deceive myself. Uh, please forgive me for the sins even that I can't see. Let's strive to do that each week here at church. But that probably isn't enough uh, For me, I try, and let me emphasize try, uh, pray the Lord's Prayer every night. Uh, That involves confessing and asking God to forgive my sins from that day. Uh, Is that something worth bringing into your life? Uh, Let's keep a short account with God. Let's not deny our sin, but confess it. And verse 9 really gives us the reason why we do this. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful in that he keeps his promises uh, to deal with the consequences of sin, both the judgment and the uncleanness. And and God is also just. Uh, This means he's going to do the right thing as he brings about the solution. This should give us incredible confidence. And the confidence comes from the last image we've got to look at today, uh, the last image of blood. Because actually it's pretty easy for us to not have confidence as Christians. Uh, Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. 
To, to walk in the light means to not sin. But I'm sure that all of us who follow Jesus today know the feeling of having failed again and again and again. Uh, we know the guilt and the shame about not having conquered a particular sin, but instead having been conquered again and again and again. Uh, we feel awful. Uh, we feel dirty. We, we don't want to confess it. We just want to hide ourselves in the shadows. How can we be confident when that is our experience? Well, let's keep reading on because John's got some great news. Verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you might not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The picture there is a court scene. Uh, the Father is the judge. Uh, we are the one in the dock on trial. Satan is the prosecutor. Uh, accusing us of sin, filling us with guilt and shame. The court case, it's a no-brainer. We're guilty. We know it. We knew what it meant to walk in the light, but we chose to walk in darkness. The father uh, lifts up his gavel. He's about to declare the case closed and give the verdict. But then our advocate, our defence solicitor, speaks up. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous. This man uh, is a man who always walked in the light, pure and perfectly good. And he speaks in our defence. He pleads for us to be declared not guilty. And he doesn't try to get us off on a technicality. There is a full and a fair solution that has been provided for us by his blood. You see that in verse 2. It says that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. Now, uh, propitiation, it's not a very common word. I, I don't think you've uh, dropped that into conversation around the water cooler this week. Uh, it's, it's a word which comes from uh, the Old Testament reading uh, that we had in Leviticus 16 today. Uh, that passage described in great detail what was to happen on the Day of Atonement. Uh, that's the day when the, the sins of the entire nation of Israel were dealt with. Uh, the high priest first had to make a sacrifice, shedding the blood of an animal. He had to do this before he came into the temple, first to deal with his own sin and to wash away his uncleanness. And once he came in, he then had to cleanse the holy place and the altar with the blood. And then after that, he was finally able to make a sacrifice for the sins of all the people. It is the shedding of blood that atones for their sins allowing them to be forgiven and to be cleansed of their unrighteousness. And, and that's propitiation. You see, we deserve punishment from God, but Jesus' blood has been shed in our place. It's turned away um, the Father's anger and allows us to be forgiven by him. And, and not just forgiven, his blood also cleanses us from all our sinfulness, from all our guilt and all our shame. Verse 2 says, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus' death is sufficient for any 
and everyone. He is the only way in the entire world that someone can be put right to God with God. But his death is only efficient for those who come to him and confess. And so we can uh, come and confess our sins confidently. Uh, this confidence is not uh, based on ourselves. <laughs> we know we stand in the courtroom guilty and unclean. Our confidence is in our advocate, Jesus. He stands before the Father. He declares us forgiven and cleansed because he died in our place for our punishment. We are clean. We have been washed by his blood. We are now in the light. Uh, let me finish today by reading one of my favorite episodes from uh, Jesus' life. Uh, it's found in Luke chapter 7. It says this, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, I brought an alabaster flask of ointment, sort of like a perfume, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort a woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Uh, can you relate to this woman? Uh, do you feel like a, a sinner? Do you feel like you're judged from the outside, guilty and dirty on the inside? Do you feel like you can barely have enough self-esteem to look another person in the eye, let alone the Lord Jesus? If that's the case, see how Jesus treats her. Uh, first, Jesus talks to the Pharisee. And he tells him a, par a parable which puts him in his place. And afterwards, he finishes saying, Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. And then he says to her, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, if you're feeling the guilt of sin today, come to the Lord Jesus. Uh, come with tears like this woman if you need to. Uh, Jesus won't turn you away. He will say the same words to you. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus stands in the heavenly courtroom advocating for people like her, for people like me, and for people like you. Come. Uh, if today you aren't a follower of Jesus... Come for the first time. Confess that you're a sinner to God. Ask for his forgiveness and you'll receive it. Uh, for those of us who follow Jesus, let's not play silly games denying how sinful we are. Don't deny sin. Confidently confess it and be forgiven. Jesus died to be our propitiation. He is our advocate with the Father. We will be forgiven. We will be washed clean, white as snow, clean to walk in the light as he is in the light. Come and confidently confess.